The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. You this morning to open up your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 16. We're going to be looking this morning at Psalm 16 at the end, particularly asking the question What difference does the resurrection make? What difference does it make? Psalm 16, I'm going to read verses 8 through 11. I want to invite everyone to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. Lord, we are here today to to hear from you, to hear your voice. Your word tells us that your sheep hear your voice. And they come when you call. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that your sheep would hear your voice. And that we would hear it as yours. And that we would joyfully come in response to it, to its call. God, help us this morning to understand the significance of the cross, the significance of the resurrection, the significance of what Jesus came to do for us, And we pray that all of this would be for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, my first year coaching baseball here uh, in LaGrange at North Oldham Little League, and uh, it was several years ago, and uh, you know Kentucky weather, and it was one of those seasons where, you know, we get like two practice times a week, and it was The majority of that time, it was either too cold, or it was raining, or it was snowing. For all of those reasons, we just had not had a lot of practice. And then the season started, and I knew after like the first week that we were in trouble. That we were not a very good baseball team. And I looked at the calendar, and I saw that there was an opening, that there was a weekend coming up where there were no games scheduled. The first weekend of May. And I was like, this is perfect. We're not a very good baseball team. And we've got this weekend open. We are going to practice. And you would have thought that I wanted to schedule baseball practice on Christmas morning. It was was basically a revolt How could you? Don't you know that it is Derby weekend? Are you from another planet? And the truth of the matter is that I kind of am from another planet. 
I'm a transplant from Alabama, and after nearly two decades, I just want to stand before you all and tell you, I still don't get it. I just don't get it. Weeks of buildup and excitement and plans and parties and gaudy hats that you wouldn't wear anywhere else for a horse race that is over in two minutes. And the end result is what? A very wealthy person gets a lot more money. And we all just play along. Now, I'll admit, I've got weird traditions where I'm from, too. Where I come from, you better not schedule a wedding on any Saturday in the fall. I guess we're all weird in our various ways. Needless to say, I did not have practice that derby weekend, and my baseball team completely stunk that year. I hope it's worth it, Kentucky. Well, today is Easter Sunday. And you know that. And for the church, this is our high holy day. We make plans. We do things we don't normally do. You guys got here early. That's definitely something you don't normally do. We go and we buy clothes and flowers and we plan family get-togethers. And of course, we go to church. We go to church even if we haven't been to church in a while. By the way, that's a great thing. I want you coming any time. But the question is that, the question I'm having in my mind and the feeling I get is that I am sure that there are some of you here today who feel kind of like I feel on Derby Weekend. You're here, but you don't really get it. And maybe you're wondering, why am I here? What is the big deal? I think for a lot of us, it's like when mama says, hey, we're going to schedule family photos. And we're like, oh, great. I'll do it, mom. What are we supposed to wear? You know, and we show up and we do it. We play along. But it's not because we have a vested interest in the photo. We don't care. We do it. Why? Because we love mom. And I'm sure that there are people here today, and you're in the same boat. You dressed up, and you made plans, and you came. Maybe mom, maybe grandma, maybe a kid. But you don't really get it. You don't really understand. And so maybe you're asking that question today. What is this really about? Why is this claim that a dead man came back to life 2,000 years ago, why is that supposed to be significant to me as I go through my life trying to raise these kids and these struggles and pay my bills? What does that have to do with me? What does it have to do with my life? And I'm hoping that I can help you answer that question this morning. We're going to ask three questions. First one, did it happen? Second question, What's the big deal? Third question, what's in it for me? So let's start with the first one. Did it happen? Now for the last two weeks, our church here, Ashland Community Church, we have been going through a series. This is the third in our Easter series. And we named our Easter series this year, Raised According to the Scriptures. That is a phrase that comes from the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. And it's significant because 
when Paul wrote that, he was saying that Jesus was raised according to the Scriptures. In other words, that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come and be raised, that He would be resurrected. In other words, Paul was claiming that you can learn about the resurrection from the Old Testament. So that's what we've been doing. Two weeks ago, we looked at how from the very beginning, the Bible is giving us the categories for understanding resurrection. The resurrection is foreshadowed in stories, stories that many of us are familiar with, stories like Noah and the ark. That's a resurrection story. Everything's put to death, and yet God preserves one man and one family through death. He resurrects humanity again through that family. Stories like the story of Jonah and the whale. He's swallowed by this fish. He's in the belly of this fish for three days. The same amount of time, and Jesus makes note of this, the same amount of time that Jesus is in the belly of the earth. And what does God do? He spits Jonah back out. He's figuratively raised again. So we looked at some of that. And then last week, we looked at specific prophecies in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah predicted, God predicted through the prophet Isaiah, that death would be swallowed up. Isaiah says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. And so right there we see that God has a plan, that death is not the way it's supposed to be, and the God of life is going to overcome it. Death will not win ultimately. It's right there in the Old Testament. So this morning, we're going to look for a few minutes here at the beginning with Psalm 16. If you look at Psalm 16, you recognize that it's just a prayer. It's the prayer, in fact, of one specific person. It's the prayer of King David. And we recognize that his life is in danger. Look at verses 1 and 2. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Why is David saying this? Because David is in trouble. We don't know exactly what's going on here. It doesn't tell us. But we know that in the midst of his despair, in the midst of his trouble, when he felt like he had no control over his life circumstances, his reflex was to turn to God in prayer and to call out for God to act. And you know, it's interesting. I notice that human beings do this a lot. I was watching Monday Night Football a few months ago with my kids, and we were watching the Bengals and the Bills game. I don't know if you sports fans will remember what happened, but DeMar Hamlin made a hit and collapsed on the field. And immediately, and I've seen injuries watching football my whole life, but immediately I knew that this was not a normal injury. There were players on their hands and knees praying. There were people on social media, people that I was surprised to see, they never talk about God, praying, offering up prayers there was a, a, a desk worker at ESPN, a, a, one of the people who chose the highlights, who prayed on the air. And it's one of those things that we know intuitively, our reflex. We know deep down there's a God because when life gets problematic, when we feel like we're in trouble, 
when we realize that we're not in control, we immediately, reflexively call out to God. What's fascinating to me is that we only do that often when we're aware that we're not in control, but we're never really in control. Our control is always an illusion. It just takes extenuating circumstances to show us that we're not in control. Here's some information. (laughs) David is there. Right now, he is in that moment where he recognizes he's not in control. And he knows, he knows that he needs God to help him. And here's the thing about David, though. He's not praying into a void. He is praying to a God who has revealed himself. And so David knows the God he's praying to. He knows the promises this God has made. And so his prayers are informed by the reality of who God is. And so we get to the end of David's prayer, and that's the part I want you to see, verses 8 through 11. This is how David ends his prayer. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you, God. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the land of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's David. David is his Holy One. You're not going to abandon me. You're not going to let my body be corrupted. And then verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures for how long forevermore we read that and we know if we keep reading in the bible eventually david dies he dies in old age he's an old man we know that david's buried in the tomb just like everybody else and yet if we look carefully at these verses david is praying in faith That he's not going to be abandoned to the dead. That he's not going to be corrupted. In fact, if you look at verse 11, that implies resurrection. You make known to me the path of life. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. How could David pray this when David is in a tomb? It's the question. Now here's the truth. David didn't get everything right. We know that. The Bible records David's many mistakes. And so we could simply conclude, okay, David, you got this one wrong. (laughs) You prayed a prayer hoping for resurrection, and it didn't happen. End of story. You got that thing with Bathsheba wrong too, you know. Well, here's the truth of this. When the apostles come along, they know this. They've got much of the Old Testament probably memorized, which is amazing because they didn't walk around with pocket Bibles and yet they knew the words of the Scriptures. But That's a whole other story. And, and when Jesus comes along, if you've ever noticed, the, the Bible makes a huge deal out of Jesus's, who, who His descendants are. You begin reading in Matthew and it starts with this genealogy. And we often skip that in our Bible reading because it's boring. I mean, who wants to read about this grandfather and he fathered him and he fathered him? But, but it's really important because what the biblical authors are showing us is that Jesus is a descendant all the way back through David, all the way back to Abraham. And that's really significant because God 
had made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of his descendants, David, God said, one of your sons is going to sit on your throne and he is going to rule forever. And then there's all these parallels between the life of David and the life of Jesus. David comes about, he is an unlikely figure to become king. Jesus comes about, and the New Testament authors, the gospel authors, are at at pains to show us that Jesus, no one was walking around going, yeah, that's the next king right there. He was born in a barn from a poor family. Nobody knew who he was, just like David. Jesus comes as a shepherd. David was a shepherd. We keep finding David's prayers on Jesus' lips. When Jesus is on the cross, he prays the Psalms. He prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is verbatim from Psalm 22, verse 1. And then when we get to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, and I want you to listen because this is the This is going to take some concentration. This is a long passage, but Peter stands up and he reads, he preaches a sermon, and I'm going to read his words to you. This is what Peter says to those gathered in Israel at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, get this, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. David says concerning Jesus, Peter says. And then Peter concludes, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You can go visit it, Peter says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that... We all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I make, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David says, hey, that was about the son of David. That was God revealing beforehand what he was going to do in the fullness of time. God has left clues throughout history, church, 
And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those clues. He's putting the puzzle completely together. We all come, we've got all these different puzzle pieces, and we sit down and and we put it all together. And what do we see? We see Jesus born, crucified, resurrected, ascended. Our salvation. Did Jesus rise from the dead? That's the question. I think that the first thing we have to recognize is that those who were there with Jesus certainly believed that he did. And they used two lines of evidence to make the point. Number one, he was the fulfillment of scriptures. Did he rise from the dead? Yes, scripture had been predicting that this was going to happen and he came and fulfilled it and we see that here. And then the second line of, of evidence that they give us is that we are the witnesses of it. You see that here in Peter's sermon. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We saw it. Now, it's interesting here. Maybe you're here today, and you're like, well, a lot of people have said they've seen a lot of things. I mean, there's people out there who say they've seen Bigfoot, you know? People will believe anything. What's fascinating to me is that the witnesses who saw the risen Christ, and there were hundreds of them, he appeared to hundreds, were willing to continue to proclaim the risen Christ even though they were put to death for it. They say, we saw Him alive. And church, listen to me. All they would have had to have done was say, it's all a lie, and they would have been spared. And yet they didn't. They continued to proclaim it. And what's more amazing is that the church, this little band of people that was so insignificant in the midst of this vast Roman Empire, this church begins exploding based upon the good news that Jesus has been resurrected. The church explodes. And all someone would have had to have done would be produce the body. He's not resurrected. Look, he's right here. Do you believe in the resurrection? That's a question you've got to determine the answer to. Everything we're talking about depends on that. If that's not true, everything we're doing here is meaningless. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in the scriptures? Do you believe and the testimony of the apostles? That's the first question. Here's the second question. Okay, let's say I do. What does it mean? What's the big deal? In this same sermon, Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 33, we read it already. I'm going to read these two verses again. Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now listen, God had promised that He was going to make a new creation. And to understand that, we have to go all the way back to the first creation. God created this earth, and He created it good. In fact, the Bible tells us that after He created it, He looked upon it, and He he was very satisfied with it. He said, this is very good. And then the people that He created to image Him on the earth, to represent Him, to rule over the earth, you and me, people just like us, rebelled against God. 
And because of that rebellion, death and corruption and sin and injustice and everything ugly about the world that we live in flooded in. We let it in. We disobeyed God. We did not follow His Word. We decided that we would rather be kings than give Him the glory as King. And so everything we know has been corrupted and everything we see, everything that gives us a headache, everything that causes us pain is a result of our rebellion against the Creator. But here's the good news. From the very beginning, God had said, I'm not going to leave it this way. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to reverse it. I'm going to make a new creation. And when Peter says at this sermon that the promise of the Holy Spirit has been poured out, Peter is saying that the new creation has started. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are now experiencing the first fruits of God's new creation. God is making all things new. Now, I, hope, I think we understand the significance of historical turning points. Now, I can think of a few in our own country's history. You know, often we talk about antebellum and postbellum. And if you study history, you know that, that antebellum and postbellum is, is a way to describe before the Civil War and after the Civil War because we recognize that the Civil War was a huge turning point in our nation, that there were a lot of things happening before, that the Civil War comes, and then after it's a whole new thing. Everything's changed. It's a turning point. More recently, we talk about post-9-11. We were alive for that one, most of us, a lot of us, right? 9-11, the world changed, in our nation specifically. Everything changed. I hear people already talking about pre- and post-COVID. How the world was different before COVID, and now it's never going to be the same. These are huge moments in history because everything going into these moments changes. And church, what the Bible is telling us is that this is, the resurrection of Jesus is the most momentous event in the history of the world because this is when everything that causes us pain, everything that we hate, and everything that we fear, this is where God stepped in and said, I am going to defeat it. I am making all things new. Through my Son, Jesus Christ, through the cross, through the resurrection, Jesus comes and He dies on the cross and He pays the penalty for our sin debt. But that's not the end of the story. Three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead and victory is proclaimed over death. Paul says, death, where is your sting? We have nothing to fear. The, the death has been defeated by our Savior. So what's the big deal? Well, that's a huge deal. But you know, if we're honest, that's a tricky question to ask. What's the big deal? To be honest, the characteristic, one of the characteristics of our age is that nothing's really supposed to ever be a big deal. There's nothing that's really significant. I mean, here's most of our lives. One minute... We're looking on our phone, and, and we're reading about a school shooting in Nashville, and we go, oh, that's terrible. And then we swipe, and the next minute, we're, we're laughing at Instagram reels. And maybe the next minute, we're, we're playing block puzzle, trying to level up. 
We live in a world where we've kind of trivialized reality. We've kind of flattened everything. We don't want to be too serious about anything. We don't want to be too invested in anything because it's risky. And so we try to just float around on the surface of things, just keep everything surface level. We don't want to invest too strongly because if we get too invested in something, we might get hurt. We might be disappointed. And so what do we do? We busy ourselves consuming content that none of us are going to remember in two days. We busy ourselves trying our best to set up our life to avoid people as much as possible. There's no line at Kroger with this lady will check you out, but I'm going to go wait in line over here so I can do it myself. I don't want to talk to anybody. What are we doing? We're trying to insulate ourselves from reality. We're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to cover ourselves so that we don't have to face the reality of death and pain in a fallen world. And church, I need you to hear this today. Friends who are gathered here, and maybe this is something you've never heard before, I need you to listen to me. The resurrection provides an alternative to that. You do not have to waste your life being numb to everything happening in the world. You do not have to merely cope and avoid and distract and entertain and consume because of the resurrection, because of the most momentous event in the history of the world. You can now stare death in the face with hope, knowing that there is a God in heaven who has acted in history to save you, to save this world, to redeem it all, and to make all things new. It is because of the resurrection that we are freed to live life to its fullest, that we are freed to risk, that we are freed to love, that we are freed to hope. Everything's significant, every relationship is significant. The resurrection teaches us that. Jesus came to redeem it all. What's in it for me? It's our last question. Did it happen? What's the big deal? All right, well now connect it to my life. What the Bible has to say about this is very profound, and this is kind of going to be a Cliff Notes version. What the Bible keeps connecting what happened to Jesus to the experience of his followers. And so somehow, when Jesus was resurrected, that's connected to people who trust in Jesus. So somehow, whatever happened to Jesus, happened to us too. Whatever Jesus accomplished is ours. And I want to just simply point out two ways that it's connected to us. The first way is the Bible says that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of the resurrection of all of Jesus' people from the dead. The first fruits. Now, I don't know many farmers today. Most of us are content just going to Kroger. But first fruits was the, the early produce of the crop. And it wasn't just like, a sign in time that, okay, here's the beginning and it's going to come later, but it was a promise of future success. 
And so when, when the Bible says that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits, it is a pledge of the future. It is saying that Jesus' resurrection is episode one, and all of his people's resurrection is episode two. It's a two part series. You can't disconnect them. You don't fully understand episode one unless you watch episode two. Jesus' resurrection guarantees the eternal destiny of all of the people who put their faith in Jesus. When a person who has their faith in Christ dies, we don't sit around and mourn the way a person who doesn't have faith in Christ dies because we recognize that the person with faith in Jesus is going to be resurrected in Christ forever. Because the first fruits, because what happened to Jesus is guaranteed to happen to us. Death will not win. But yet there's one other thing, one other way that the resurrection of Jesus is connected to our life. And we find that in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Where Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So Jesus' death is our death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, those who put their faith in Jesus don't just have to look forward to a future resurrection. We get the resurrection of Jesus today. We get to walk in newness of life. We get to experience a mini resurrection in our souls. We get to begin living the way God wants life to be lived in His new kingdom. And we get to start on that right now. Newness of life. An internal resurrection. A decisive transition. The Bible has all kinds of images for helping us understand this. The most powerful is that we go from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Bible also says that we go from being spiritually blind to being able to spiritually see. The Bible also talks about us going from bondage. where We are enslaved to our sins to Freedom under Christ. The Bible says that we go from a life devoted to sin and selfishness to a life devoted to righteousness in honor of God. That we go from prioritizing self above everything to prioritizing God before everything. And we struggle to fully grasp what the Bible's saying when it talks about transformation because the world has its own version of transformation. And I think oftentimes, and I hear this in the world, and I talk to people, and they're like, yeah, I need to get back to church, you know. I need to change some things in my life. And that's not what the Bible's talking about. This isn't a diet. This isn't a workout plan. This isn't us turning over a new leaf. What the Bible is saying is that when a person submits to God through Christ, God literally, spiritually resurrects us. We go from being a person under wrath to being a person under the grace and mercy of God forever. 
We go from being spiritually dead to being fully alive in every sense of the word, the way God intended from the beginning. This is really important. God is not a technique. He is not a tool. He is not a life hack. He is king. And we experience newness of life when we recognize that He is King and when we submit ourselves to Him as Lord by faith. The Bible says when that happens, we experience the new birth. We are a new creation. We are fully awakened to the reality of God. We are aware of the goodness and mercy of God in Christ. We become joyful worshipers. We're not having to be drugged to church. We want to be at church because we want to worship the risen King. Our life centers around the cultivation of faith and hope and love. We receive the Spirit of God which immediately begins producing in us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We are restored back to the way it's supposed to be and the way it's going to be forever when Jesus returns. What's in it for me? Everything. Salvation. Listen, If you're in Jesus, you don't have to live in fear anymore. If you're in Jesus, you don't have to try to create significance for yourself. Jesus is your significance. Jesus is everything. If you're in Jesus, you don't have to be lonely. Listen to me, if you're lonely, I want to tell you some good news. There is a group of people at 3714 Highway 146... And we gather around the resurrected King. And we love each other. And we live life with each other in the trenches. And we want to invite you to join us anytime. Our Savior is not exclusive. Our Savior includes all who will repent and believe in Him and trust Him. Have you been an outsider to Easter? Are you an outsider today? Well, the good news is that you don't have to be. Jesus died and was raised to save me. Jesus died and was raised to save you. And you can believe today. You can experience the resurrection by faith. Let's pray together.